Well, it's, uh, it's five after 11. Perfect. Because I feel like there's so much to say. We've been spending a lot of time in James. And as you can tell by the word at the front, uh, we've been talking a lot about what it means to be an apprentice, an apprentice of Jesus. I see people popping up. That means I've missed one announcement. Uh, Junior highs, you can be excused to head off. JJ is waiting for you and has a word for you. It's going to be great. Um, We've been talking about what it means to be an apprentice. And James is all about um, this idea of being just like Jesus. Uh, James is a fascinating book. in reading it and getting to spend the last few weeks kind of diving into it, my, my appreciation for this book only continues to grow. It is a, it is a web of, of neat ideas and key words that, that James kind of returns to and knits together, and it's really just quite a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, if you'll remember, we often do... Um, kind of a bit of an eight-minute video or something that kind of explains every book of the Bible. It's done by the Bible Project. Project. And two things that they've said about the book of James that I really appreciate is that it's the kind of book that, and I quote, gets in your business and challenges the way you live. Not a book for the faint of heart, because James is all about getting in your business and challenging the way that you live. And I don't know about you, but in the sermons that I've been hearing uh, and this book of James, I've been, I've been really challenged in that. A second thing that they, that they quote, and, and I love this, it says, refers to it as a, a beautifully crafted punch in the gut. Don't you like that? Like some days that's just what you need. And so if you've, if you've been following along in the book of James with us, you've, you've likely experienced that. And if you haven't, today will be a real treat for you. Today's uh, passage, there's really kind of um, two chunks of scripture. And in, in getting ready for this morning, I really just wanted to forget all about the second half and just spend all my time in the first half. And so I have intentionally waited the front part of this sermon. So if we're going through and you're like, it's getting on 1140 and he hasn't hit the second chunk of scripture yet, what are we in for? Don't worry, we'll, we'll get through, we'll get through. Or we'll skip it all together. Because I really feel um, what God is wanting to put his emphasis on is on this, is on this first chunk. So, and it's going to challenge the way that we, uh, challenge the way that we live in this, and that it goes at the heart of three things that we hold most dear. It challenges our will this morning, it challenges our use of time, and it challenges our use of money. And the money is the second portion of, of, path, of Scripture, so you'll all be happy if I miss that, if I go long on the first chunk. Um, just wanting to set kind of a, take a couple minutes and set the context of James. Um, it's helpful to understand sort of the flow of thought of where James is coming from. And so I'd, I'd like to do that. So if, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to James. Um, in James 3, kind of starting at 13, James is talking about this idea of two different kinds of wisdom. James loves to sort of set up um, ideas, like concepts that say it's this or it's this. Kind of sort of binary. He loves to draw sort of uh, on ideas like that. And he's talking about two kinds of wisdom. And wisdom being not just information, but wisdom being this idea of applied knowledge, 
where we take the stuff that we know and we apply it to our life. And he's saying that there's two kinds. There's one, there's that of the world, which is largely fueled, he calls it, as a bitter envy and selfish ambition. And then he says, which leads, and he says that it leads to every disorder and every evil practice. And then there's two, a wisdom that comes from heaven, which is a godly wisdom. And it interacts very differently with the world and in our lives because it produces a purity, peace, submission, mercy, good fruit. It's impartial and it's sincere, radically different than the wisdom of the world. One wisdom serves itself and the other wisdom allows us access, and this is key, to participate in the life of God, which for every Christian is the most important thing, being in harmony and alignment with God and experiencing life on his terms. James 4 then, uh, he heads into this idea of humble submission to God versus friendship with the world. And he uses really strong language to say anybody that would consider themselves a friend of the world makes themselves an enemy of God. God, trying to get our attention to emphasize the reality that as people, we need to be living in submission to God, which is actually a theme he continues to pick up in today's passage. In that chunk, he stresses that God opposes the proud, but if you're humble, you're in luck because God gives extra grace to those who are humble. And at the end of chapter 4, um, James touches on this reality that God is judge. He is the only lawmaker, and he is the one who we will stand before and have to give an account. And he says, in light of that, who are we to judge our brothers and sisters? God alone is judge. So, here we go. We pick up into these next two chunks, uh, passages of Scripture. They seem really different today, but they're actually connected by, by something really unique. It's a, it's a literary term that, um, that James uses, and we would, the NIV translates it as this idea of now listen. And if you've ever read through James kind of all in one sitting, you'll realize that he uses this phrase only twice, and it's with these two thoughts, and they're right close together, which, you know, Bible scholars will tell you anything kind of literary like that. It's, it's meant to set apart and meant to draw your attention and that they're meant to kind of stay together or they're working in, in combination with each other. So we're going to jump right in. If you'd like, uh, please turn in your Bibles to James. We're going to be taking a look at uh, chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. And we're going to kick it off here with this first verse. This is what James says. He says, now listen, you who say... Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Now, on the surface, this comment seems fairly normal and natural. Uh, one of the things I'd love to point out to you is this idea of you who say. Say in, in kind of um, in the Greek here, it's actually not just getting at sort of what people verbally confess. Like he's not just quoting a statement here that is just um, random or haphazard or not common. He's actually quoting something here that, that gets more at this idea of, of a logic, of a way of living, a way of, um, of ordering your life and and walking it out. It's kind of getting at this idea of, of a logic. And so it says, uh, you who say so, or you who rule your life by the logic that, you know, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. 
Now, we get the idea here and doing a little bit of research that James is probably talking to um, merchants here. Given the nature of them conducting business and traveling to cities and, and doing business there. Now, the merchant class actually in the first century weren't, weren't super wealthy people. They could be, but the stakes were kind of stacked against them. And what I mean by that is like in, in North America, we have the glorious middle class, right? That's huge, like, it's a large chunk, so there's, people have, a, have disposable income. And so we think nothing of buying, you know, buying goods from China or Thailand or Japan. Um, we think nothing of that. They're readily available and easy. Now, in the first century, it was a little bit of a different story. Their middle class was virtually non-existent. It was either you had the extremely, extremely wealthy, which represented about 10% of the population, and then you had 90% of the people that were probably slaves or like below the poverty line type thing. So there wasn't a lot of disposable income. So as a merchant, your job was based on speculation and the acquiring of goods, uh, traveling with those goods and then dispersing them with the hopes of turning a profit. Now, what's so bad about that? It's not a bad statement. I mean, we can tell it involves planning. It has an aim. It involves speculating, setting a goal, pursuing aspirations. It's about supporting yourself and your family. To me, these all seem like good, desirable things, especially if you're a business person. It makes sense. But we know, we know that James takes issue with that. And here, I like making a plan. It's something I, I kind of relish in. I enjoy thinking ahead, planning ahead, dreaming about possibilities, making a plan, and then more than making a plan, I enjoy sticking to it. How many of you are list people? Yeah, oh yeah, I like you guys. You know, you can't, you can't get through a day without drawing some kind of checklist, right? And, and checking it off. I know we're, it's... It's, it's, a, it's a hobby of mine. I love, I love checklists so much. And there's something so exciting about being able to tick that box that seriously, if I'm having trouble getting up in the morning, I can reach over, I grab a pen and paper, and I write, get up. <laughs> and I draw a little nice little square box there. And then I assess the situation and I go, I'm here. I'm breathing. My eyes are open. Tick. <laughs> and the surge that, of life that comes into me. It's amazing. I, like, I pop up, I fling my feet out of bed, and I'm like, man, eight breaths, I'm already checking stuff off this morning. It's, it's life-giving. And you know what, if, if that little tick didn't quite do it, I know there's, there's those of you who, like, a little tick just doesn't bring the right kind of gratification. So you, you cross that baby off the list, right? You scribble it out. You make sure you can't even legibly read what was there anymore. And that gives you a boost of dopamine that just charges you for the day. There's something about it, about the human condition that we love making plans. And there's something incredibly rewarding about seeing the plans that we've made come to flourishing. It's awesome. But there are planners in this life, and then there is everyone else. 
to the next slide, please. These kind of people <laughs> that don't plan, that prefer to do like this cartoon says, it says we usually do all our long-range planning at the last minute. This idea that, you know, we're just going to decide right now in the immediate moment what we need to do with our time, our resources, our money. And, you know, there's, there's no plan. They just kind of, and I, I, don't, I, I don't understand these people, so I won't talk for too long on that. You know, their, their only plan, it seems to me, it seems to me with, with people like this, and I'm, I'm poking a little bit of fun, so please don't be, so please don't be offended by what I say, but, but I don't understand people that don't plan, because it seems to me like their, their only plan is to not plan. <laughs> and their only, and their, their plan to not plan, their only plan when someone sits down with them and says, we must plan, and they go, okay, you're right, we must plan. But then you know what happens, right? They wander off. While that person is busy planning and working it out, that person that doesn't like to plan, they wander off. They go for a walk. They enjoy themselves. It's not that big a deal. Because they know. They know that those people that have to plan will do all the work. <laughs> They'll do it all. They'll take care of it all. And they can come in about an hour or two later and just simply go, looks great. Let's roll with that. That's fine. Right? Oh, do not get those people. Anyways, planning is not a bad thing. But we know in this next verse, James wishes to challenge that logic, and here is what he has to say. So in verse 14, here we go. James says this. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So to those that have that planning logic and are committed to it, James raises two thoughts for them. He says, you don't even know. You don't have the knowledge of what tomorrow holds. In a sense, he's saying you have limited understanding. So how is it that you can plan a year in advance when you're limited in what you know, what you're able to foresee? Secondly, he asks this idea of what is your life? Is it not extremely temporary in nature? Think about your life. Isn't it extremely temporary in nature? When you think about the big picture, there's not much permanence to the human life. James describes it as a mist or a vapor that's here and then it's gone. And I think about, it seems like the latest trend, this idea of vaping, you know? When you see people, we've all encountered that thick caramel smell of someone vaping. But that idea of a thick, strong mist, that's amazing, and then it just dissipates. I've seen a YouTube clip of actually a guy who like blows ring smokes and stuff with like, with the vape stuff. And it's amazing. Like he's, he's making circles go in circles and it's like, it's anyway, something for you to do in your spare time. It's really... <laughs> It's really impressive. Anyways, James describes our lives as that, as a mist that's here for a little while and then it vanishes. We have limited permanence in this life. So don't these two things, our limited amount of knowledge and our temporary existence given the bigger picture, 
what do these do to the best laid plan? Or how do these inform the plans that we made? This is what James is getting at. This is what he's challenging. For instance, think of a massive airport, okay? Like Heathrow, something where there is, there is hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of planes landing on any given day. And say up there in the air traffic controller tower, they're busy away working and there's a guy, I don't know whether he'd be known as the CEO or who the, who the guy would be in charge up there, but say the top guy who's responsible for everything, say he, he has a doctor's appointment the next day. So he calls up a temp agency and says, can you please have someone over here for tomorrow at 7 a.m.? No problem, they hang up tomorrow morning, Someone from a temp agency walks into the air traffic control and is given this position of being completely and totally in charge. They lack knowledge. They don't know anything about this. Can you imagine how that would play out during the day? And maybe, and you know, like sometimes the best advice at a job is fake it till you make it, right? So you can imagine this temp person walking in and being like, I'm not going to feel threatened about what's being asked me to do. I'm not going to be intimidated by that. This is my moment to shine. You know, for 12, 15 hour, I'm going to rise to this challenge. And I'm going to show everybody here that I know what I'm doing. So they're, they're owning this job. They are giving instructions. They are giving directions. They are pushing buttons. They are telling people what to do. And it is chaos. Planes are crashing in the sky, falling down. The runway's jammed up. The only little bit of peace in the whole day is lunch hour. When the temp takes off to go eat their lunch and comes back. And to make matters worse, the next day the temp's not even there and the CEO comes back to just, just a wreck of an airport. You can imagine that. Because they lacked knowledge and they weren't even around to see all the consequences for all their actions. Of course, we would never do that. We would never want to be in a situation like that. James is saying our confidence in our ability to plan often overlooks these two realities. We don't know what tomorrow holds, and our time is here quite short, but we make the best of it. We make the most of it. In verse 15, here's what James goes on. He goes on to suggest how we should live, or the logic to which we should employ in our everyday life. And this is what he says. He says, instead, you ought to say, and again, say not just verbalize, but say as in live your life according to this logic. He says, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And James introduces here an idea and understanding that, that ought to precede all of our planning. That it's not a mere acknowledgement of the Lord, but there's also an implied submission to God's will. There's a significant difference here. It's not, about, it's not about some cliche or just saying, you know, like you meet those, you meet people and I, man, I'm, I'm guilty of it, where, where in talking about planning and stuff like that, you, you throw on like, well, if, if God wills it. You know, Lord willing, you know, and we make comments like that. And sometimes they almost become cliche because if we actually sit down and go like, well, have you prayed about that decision? Have you submitted that plan to the Lord? Have you spent some time evaluating in, in light of your lack of knowledge and, your, and your, your temporary existence? And I'd have to say, no. No, I haven't. I haven't. 
But it's a fundamental logic, an approach to life, wherein all of our planning is done and pursued second to what the will of the Lord is. This means that the plan may not necessarily change. But what is given priority has changed. I'll say it again. The plan is preceded by an acknowledgement of God's will with an implied submission to whatever the Lord's will is. So this might seem a little bit obvious, but, but why is this important? Well, I think James is drawing a little bit of a contrast here where in given what he said just prior to this, that we are limited in our knowledge and we're limited in our very existence, he's drawing our attention to the Lord who is neither of those things. He is all of that in a big way, that he is all-knowing. Omniscience. It's omniscience, but it's omniscience is the, is the fancy word for that. That God is all-knowing. And uh, omnipresent, this idea that God is everywhere, all the time, at the same time, in every way possible. Throughout history, throughout time and space, his presence is real and there in every one of those moments. So there's a contrast here. Being that we can make our own plans from our limited understanding and limited time in the here and now, or... We are invited to consult and submit to the one, the will of the one who is all-knowing and ever-present all the time. It seems a bit of a no-brainer to me that if we have that option, why wouldn't we consult God? If he's the one that knows, we should step into that. And I love, this is where you kind of see the brilliance of sort of the themes that James is weaving throughout this book. Because he's already said elsewhere, actually, at the very beginning of the book, he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault. James is padding his argument here of that we do right and we do well to consult God in our planning. So herein lies the challenge for us this morning, is do we give the Lord's will priority in our planning and what we do with our time? Perhaps, perhaps the greatest litmus, litmus test for how well you do at this or don't do at this is to have your own plans change. Have you been there? where you've invested tons of time, mental energy, and resources into coming up with this really, it's brilliant, this elaborate plan that you're just like, this is perfect. This is exactly what needs to happen. And you proceed to go through your day and check your boxes and cross them out. And then all of a sudden, something unforeseen happens and the plan now must change, right? You didn't get into the college or university that you were hoping to get into. The plan changes. An accident happens. Something totally unforeseen. The plan changes. And so now, the litmus, litmus test is this. What happens inside of you when that occurs? I don't know. On my best day, on my best day, I'm caught off guard and I'm uneasy. 
That's on my best day when my plans change. And it could even be going down to the going downstairs and being out of coffee. The plan changes, okay? Uneasy, caught off guard on my best day. On my worst day, I'm spitting mad. I'm angry. And it doesn't, maybe it doesn't, maybe I don't show it right away, but there inside me, there's a storm, and I am. I am frustrated and I'm agitated and it doesn't take long before everyone else in my house knows that dad isn't happy. And it makes me realize that, hmm, something about that maybe might suggest that my plans weren't submitted to the will of God. Sorry, one second. James wants us to give priority to what the Lord's will is. And how James does this, I love the, I love the way that he does this, because you realize that he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily suggest that the plan is going to change, yet he alludes to it. Like, look, look in the structure. He doesn't just say, if it's the Lord's will, and then he requotes that whole normal logic, right? Like, it's not just a, a matter of, like, tacking on a stamp and giving verbal credence to submitting to the Lord's will, and then you just go on about your business, because that's not real submission at all. Look at what he does here. He says, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Sort of makes it a little bit more vague. And I realize that this idea of submitting to your plans to someone who is greater than you means that you have to relinquish control. And I realize that that's one of the reasons why I get so frustrated when plans change is because I'm no longer in control. I no longer have knowledge or understanding of what's going to happen that gives me a sense of peace and a sense of rest. I'm all of a sudden reeling a little bit. And I envy my brothers and sisters so much in those moments of those people that are just laissez-faire, just go with the flow, like totally just phlegmatic and just can roll with it. And I'm envious of them and don't wish I had what they have in those moments. In James's example here, we see that all plans are held lightly and with an open hand which is the posture of every Christian asserting their will, is that it's never closed-fisted. It's held with an open hand. You know, that he says here that we'll either go and we'll do this or we'll do that. Like, it's no big deal. Seems like James doesn't appreciate, you know, the hours and hours that went into planning this and now we're just going to do that. And yet, if we consult the Lord, submit our wills to him, all of our planning takes on a, a grace, a grace of a, of a higher perspective. That even in the midst of plans totally changing and a whole new checklist having to be drawn up, that God is still in control. That we submit to the one who wasn't surprised by this turn of events 
wasn't threatened, wasn't caught off guard, isn't, isn't frustrated, but knows it perfectly. Imagine the freedom that that truth offers to your life and your planning. To be able to roll with the punches, uh, not because you took a break from planning, but that even in your best planning, you know that God is able to trump and change whatever it is that he wants. And you're okay with that. Because there's been something that's been settled in your soul that says, it's not my will I desire, but it's God's will. And whatever God desires to happen, that's what I most desire. And that's where I'll roll. And as long as I'm there with him, it doesn't matter what I'm facing. It's his will that I desire. Crazy implications for our lives in the here and now. That single little switch. But it's hard for people because we like to be in control. For me, it has, uh, uh, overseeing student ministries has been a ton of fun. And I bring my, my, my excitement about planning and my commitment to an agenda to student ministries. And uh, it's fun, but it causes me some anxiety. For instance, like when you plan an event where you're expecting, you know, a certain number of people to be there and then there either isn't, oh, it can be kind of devastating, Right? How can you play nine square if there's only six people? Or how can you play four square on the floor if there's only three of you, right? Like it, and so there's, there's a certain amount of kind of like anxiety of the plan. And I had one since, uh, actually, instance of this happened on Friday. But it was pretty cool because um, there was some stuff going on at Cornerstone, so obviously we had, we had a little bit lower numbers. But everybody showed up and we realized, you know what, kind of, I realized what I sort of had planned isn't going to work with sort of this number. So we did what all great student ministry pastors do. You treat everyone to McDonald's. It's just what you do. It's your secret weapon. So we walked down to McDonald's and uh, we're laughing and joking and visiting on the way. We get there. We order drinks and we get some fries and stuff. It's dollar drink day. So I mean, it's like not hard on the budget at all. It's amazing. And so... We're there, and we're just hanging out, and uh, we're visiting, and I was sitting over at one corner of the table, and there's another youth leader there, and we're talking with the two guys and a, and a or sorry, three, three girls and, and a couple of us guys, and uh, all of a sudden, this idea of like personality tests come up, and so all of a sudden, they're like, well, I wonder if I can find that test online, so all of a sudden, all five of us are filling out a personality test online, getting our results, and then swapping and comparing and chatting about stuff. And as I walked back to Hillcrest, I realized, had I just stuck to the plan, I wouldn't have encountered this amazing kind of sporadic moment where I realized I don't get a lot of time to just hang out with these kids, to just visit, to be natural, to just see whatever's on their agenda, whatever they want to talk about, and just go with the flow. And it created, for me at least, it created just a sense of kind of um, bonding in our community to get to have that interaction. And if I'm honest, I realize 
probably my plan didn't make room for that. God's plan was much better. And I was so happy that in that moment, I was actually able to kind of see it and go with it rather than just insisting to a plan. But the distinction is not between those who plan and those who don't. The issue is between those who acknowledge and submit to the Lord's will and those who don't. Take verse 16 here. It says, As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. It is the pride we take in our sense of control that is evil. Evil seems like a harsh word to me, and yet, in it, there's such an arrogance that's devoid of any acknowledgement of God who is over us and above us in every way. This kind of boasting is evil because it lives, moves, acts, plans without consideration or submission to the Lord. All such investments of our will, time, and energies set us up against God rather than aligning us with him. And if there's a theme that's been coming out more and more as I study these scriptures, and even with this idea of apprenticeship, is that that's the idea, is that God wants to encounter life, planned life, with us. Think about it as a, um, a tradesperson, like someone into stonecraft, carving stones for a living. Can you imagine them getting this big, huge textbook that tells them everything they need to know about how to cut stones, and all they do is they spend time with that manual learning the information. Now, when they go and they pick up the tools, which they can recognize because the book had a lot of pictures, it's my kind of book, he goes to cut the stones, and what does he find? He has the knowledge, but he lacks all the ability. His hands have not been trained. God is not interested in, in that kind of a relationship with us where we're filled with a knowledge, but we lack relationship. We lack an understanding of his presence with us. Now, take that same stone cutter, put him as an apprentice to a great stone carver. And day in, day out, this stone carver lets him know how this knowledge applies to the craft. Shows him how to use the tools. Shows him the tricks of the trades. Shows him how to study the rocks and understand how they break. He's able to troubleshoot and problem solve on the spot because the master is there with him. And I think that that creates so much more of, of, of what God desires for our life is not that he gives us marching orders and we take off to go look after it, but it's, we're called to life with God where he's walking beside us, our wills in submission to his, and he's able to train our hands for the work ahead. In ending this chunk of scripture here in verse 17, this is what James says. He says, if anyone then knows the good that they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Here, James is referring to what is commonly called as the sin of omission. Not doing, not doing what we know that we should do. In this way, James emphasizes the importance of living out and acting on what you believe, especially if it pertains to matters of faith. I know sometimes when you talk about understanding what the Lord's will is, that some of us 
treat that with sort of a, a high level of sort of mysticism and kind of like unknowability. And so in any given area where we're like, I'm not really too sure what God's will is for that, we're prone to inaction. We're prone to standing still, to neither speaking up nor moving forward. Because, hey, after all, I don't know what God wants. And yet James here, his words are a punch in the gut because he challenges us that says, if you know the good that you ought to do and you don't do it, it's sin. So the default here for James isn't one of inaction, but it's one of persistence in doing the good we know to be right. And sometimes that's a challenge. With our wills submitted to the Lord, we become partners with him in his work here on earth. When our wills and lives are given over to God in submission, this is when we really find our true selves and begin to live the life that God desires for us. I would challenge you today, are you confused about your life? Are you a little bit disillusioned by where your path has taken you? Could it be that you've been living according to your own plan or lack thereof a plan? But what if you submit your will and your plans to the one who already knows? The one who's crafted you, designed you, knows your first day and your last and knows all of eternity. What if you submitted your will to him? Wow. How freeing that is. I think if we persist in living our lives in surrender to the Lord, we'll be amazed at its implications. I'm not going to get to money today. I really want to I really want to go over sort of what I feel like the Lord had kind of laid on my heart this idea of submission to his will and its implications. So we're going to we're going to go through this and then close. I'll get you the next slide up. There we go. So, this idea of living in submission to the Lord's will is is clearly a challenge that James has presented to all of us, represented by the me or which would be you on there by that nice, it looks kind of oblong, interesting. It was a perfect sphere lived before. The you, doesn't matter, Chris, keep moving. And this idea of the world, so there you are in submission to the world. Now, say you're there and you have submitted your will to God. You say, Lord, I desire your will in my life. You now are taking what matters most to God, which is his mission to reach out and make himself known and to bless the rest of the world. So there you are in mission and there's the world, a dark place. Now, here's the interesting insight here, is that you're not actually alone in that. God doesn't call us in isolation. Rather, as the next slide will show, our families, we're placed in a context with our families. So your commitment to the Lord's will will have implications in your family. So what does that look like? You might be totally committed to the Lord's will. How does that show up in your family? Could you say that your family is committed and submitted to the will of the Lord? And what might that look like? I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing this out as a bit of a challenge. 
that what does it look like for a family that lives in total submission to God's will? Maybe it's time praying, time worshiping, time witnessing, time blessing. One of the ways that I find family ministry to be so amazingly effective is that when your kids bring home friends and you get an opportunity to just encourage them and bless them, that is a family ministry. Another family ministry, as we'll see by the next slide here, is that it just keeps getting bigger because every family is sort of a part of a smaller group or friends or, or family friends that you share close relationship with. Now, what does it look like to meet together as friends and families that are together submitted to God's will? This idea that we do mission together. Many of you probably experienced something like that in terms of our life groups here, that a group of people that are committed to uh, meeting together, reading God's word, praying together, and then living and sharing your lives together. Some of you I know, you volunteer at Joe's place and you're a blessing down there. You're engaged in mission together. It's an important part of what God calls us to is not just ourselves, not just our families, but being a part of a larger group that's submitted to doing the will of the Lord. What might that look like in your context? Or if you're without that context, maybe this morning is, a, is an encouragement for you to seek that out, that God doesn't intend for us to live and to walk alone, but to be engaged in mission with other people. And yet again, it continues to get bigger, as we'll see with the final slide here, this idea of a faith community, that we all attend a church and isn't it an amazing thing? I just think about when we, with worship this morning, we're all gathered together, worshiping together, all from different contexts, different backgrounds, yet we're gathered in this place, committed to pursuing what the Lord's will is for us in community together. And the end result here, it's huge. All of a sudden, where we felt like we were such a small part of God's will in this world, that we realize that we're actually a part of something much, much bigger. Your submission to God's will has far-reaching implications on your participation in all these realms. And they're important because of the way that they create a support and a help in times when we need it. If you think of yourself as that first image with the, the only you, facing the world with God? What happens when you become discouraged, disillusioned, embittered, and struggling? The mission falters and you feel totally isolated and alone. And yet if you look at something like this, that this allows room, a safety net of sorts, that if you're struggling or facing challenges, you're not alone. There's many stages of people gathered around you to support you in prayer, to encourage you, and to help remind you of the ever-living presence of a God who's here and who cares for you and loves you. Not going into it, but what ends here is James going into a passage, and it's kind of a judgmental passage. It reeks, not reeks, it has the aroma of the prophetic. And, but he's got really harsh words about people's money. 
And in my mind, I really see that passage as sort of the end result of people that don't listen to what he said at the beginning. That people who won't submit their wills to the Lord will just pursue the wisdom of the world, will go after money, will go after things, and in the end, wealth rots and wealth ends up condemning us if we haven't lived a life in submission to God. And I love this again, this beautiful tapestry of James where if you read the book of Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount and James all together, there's just so many webs crisscrossing them. You can tell that James is very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount because he, you know, Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your whole heart is also. And these things that say, seek first God's kingdom and all the rest will be added unto you. That there's a clear portrayal that even Jesus, Jesus initiated and James echoes is this reality that we need to give priority to the will of the Lord and to submit to him. I'm going to invite our worship team. If you guys want to come back, they're going to lead us in just one more song. And as they do that, I'd like to challenge you of thinking of it in this way. Think of your will, think of your time, and think of your money, not as just, um, just things that you use and spend, but rather think of them as tools. Tools that God has placed in your hand, that he has given you a will. Some of you are like hardened steel, okay? Like hardened wills. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad way to be. Especially when you're a tool that's in the hand of God. And so your, think of your will as your tool, your time as a tool for you to use, and your money as a tool for you. We can all use those in harmful or hurtful ways. Or we can, like an apprentice, submit ourselves to God and say, Lord, teach me how to use these things.